yeah, it's it's different, Michael, and it started from five now. We don't have a countdown from six anymore. Oh my god, I feel one secondly uncomfortable. Yeah, it's completely <laughs> different now. I'm lost as well. I don't know what to do. <laughs> so this happens a lot though, Martin, and I think it's a good sign, right? So Eric Youngstrom, who's joining us tonight, he's the founder and CEO at OnRamp Funds. Like the first thing I notice about Eric, except for the unbelievably cool Texas flag in the background, <laughs> is he's got the killer and the thumbs up, of course, is he's got the killer <laughs> microphone. Yeah. <laughs> How do you think he sounds? I think he sounds amazing. How are you, Rich? <laughs> well, I'm I'm happy to be here and I'm I'm happy the mic's taking care of things. <laughs> oh my god, he, he sounds like he's on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Super good. What are we gonna do? So, Eric, it's nice to have you here. We already said the founder and the CEO at OnRam Funds. There's a lot to talk about there as well. But before we do that, can you give us some of, besides the Texas thing, which people will see pretty obviously, can you give us a little bit of your background just for some context? Sure, sure. Yeah, we're, I'm, I'm the, as you said, I'm the CEO and founder and of OnRam Funds. I'm honored to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. You're welcome. Um, uh, I've been in Texas about 25 years, uh, actually, at um, didn't, wasn't born here, but I have, uh, ancestors who fought for the, uh, for independence, the battle of San Jacinto. So I have deep, deep, deep Texas roots. Oh, wow. Um, I have been in software now for about 20 years, uh, mostly in startups, um, a little stint at an acquirer, uh, in my last startup, uh, called shipping easy. We were, uh, um, we provided a, a suite of, of fulfillment solutions for, the small e-commerce business owner who needed to convert those digital orders into an analog set of processes and then get that that product in the box and off to a carrier so it could be delivered anywhere in the world that needed to go to get to that customer so and then cool. um bought by stamps and uh, spent a few years at stamps um and then really saw the opportunity to start on ramp and was excited to do so and and uh you know here we are kind of a year and a half later and in, into our journey and about 30 people and a couple hundred customers and just you know trying to build a better solution for for our small business clients. Did you work at Dell as well? I did. Um, gosh, back in the mid nineties before I went to grad school, okay. I, I, uh, I was a liberal arts undergrad and I talked my way into Dell to build out their network interface card testing lab. Uh, no tech experience whatsoever, but I got to build a, a really cool lab with token ring and ethernet and all of these different protocols. And, about 1,600 different computers hooked up to different servers so that you could really just pound the hell out of those things. Was that it was your, a lot of fun. Was that your first time working in Texas? That was my first time working in Texas. I, well, I did catering in college. Yeah, but, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> I washed dishes in college, and to be fair, probably the best job I've ever had and the most skilled I ever was, to be fair. So fair enough. I'm really curious about this. I had a blast this, doing it. I'm really curious about this, and I don't even know how long you were at Dell. But there was, like, before Dell Computer, like, Austin was always a super cool place, right? But Michael Dell kind yep. of put it on the map, at least in my life. And I can't believe I'm more than, like, 15 years older than you are. Maybe more. I, I don't know. But you know what I mean? Like, what was it like back then being a Dell? And even doing the stuff you were doing was super cool. Did you feel back then like you were part of something that was amazing? Or was it just like a job? It was really cool. Um, gosh, a couple of things about it. One... Um, I, I was employee f somewhere between 14 and 15,000. I can't remember, but my badge number started with a one, four, um, uh, funny side note, my office, um, if you've ever seen office space, um, I was in the same office park as in a tech, um, literally. <laughs> 
so when I see that movie, it, it certainly resonates with me. Um, the team was fantastic. Everybody was trying to accomplish really cool things. It was a year or two after Michael Dell had really blown up right. on the, you know, kind of first iteration of the laptop. Yep. And, and I think he borrowed a, a truck and run over one to tell him, tell the team just how disappointed he was. Um, but then they were really pushing out fantastic product. Um, when I left in 98 to go to grad school, um, you know, a lot of people looked at me like I was crazy to leave because of, what you know, was. options. I mean, Dell and, was you know, a thing, right? I mean, it, it was, it, it was crazy to leave. Um, but at the same time I knew, you know, that's what I wanted to do is to go get my MBA and just get more professional. Um, and you know, in kind of hindsight, it was, you know, maybe I left a few years early, but in 2000, when the collapse happened, you know, I had friends that were married that were both at Dell that right. both got laid off. Yep, yep. Um, and so, you know, that was also kind of nuclear winter here in Austin in the whole tech scene. So, you know, in, in, I think in the long run, it worked out really, really well for me. Um, but certainly, I loved working there and the people were fantastic and, and there was a great energy and all kinds of cool things happening. So, you know, zero complaints and um, it certainly helped me launch a career here in Austin. I want to do a little bit more Texas work, right? Because I had a partnership a few years ago with UT Austin. Okay. Right. The University of Texas at Austin, which has really a pretty incredible business school. I mean, tell me if you think I'm wrong, right? But it's a pretty incredible business oh, yeah. school there. And I just want people to understand a little bit more about like the growth of University of Texas at Austin. The Texas system itself is pretty amazing, but the Austin campus is really great and the business school has turned out to be pretty amazing as well can you talk about that experience a little bit too and then i want to get further into the future to stand sure yeah so i um i came to texas to 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 go to the business school yeah. um uh, i spent a year working at dell you know the other part of that was getting my in-state tuition because it, it you know it made a yeah. huge difference and saved me a ton of money um the the campus back then was different right they've done massive remodeling and and moved the business school couple buildings over and things like that since then. But what they have built is fantastic now. Um, it was a wonderful experience, a great program. I was there when, you know, McCombs came in and donated all that money and they renamed it. Um, uh, you know, I can't say enough great things about it. It's what brought me to Austin. And honestly, when I finished, uh, I never left. I just, I stayed here. So I've been here 25 years now, which, you know, makes me more of a local than most, but you know, there are still a few unicorns I keep meeting who are born and raised. So <laughs> they're harder and harder to come by though. They are. What, a, what an incredible experience. When you were at shipping easy and you went through the acquisition of stamps, right? Stamps, I think is a, like, and you didn't even call it stamps.com. You just called it stamps. And the presumption there is that everybody, yeah, but it's interesting, right? Because it's a company overseas and a lot of our listeners, like we've got a really global audience, right? So they'll hear stamps. They'll be like, huh, what is that? So I wanted to just say it explicitly, but stamps.com is again, also a pretty incredible company. Um, yeah. Trying to solve a problem that felt like it was really straightforward. Like, why do I need that in my house? Like, well, I don't understand kind of thing, but once you have it and use it, people swear by it. And they acquired the company where you were working. Is that right? Shipping easy. That's what right. What was that like uh, going, they, they going through the acquisition? Like, what did you learn about, getting acquired? You know, we, we went through an acquisition process that ran about six months. Uh, we had a number of people at stamps actually came in at the very end and, and, and won at the end. Um, it was, you know, the, the, the due diligence process is in, incredibly difficult, yeah. right? So um, it, what was really interesting was how quickly the stamps team could move as opposed to some of the other guys. The flip side to that, right, is that because we've been going through the process, our data rooms were in order, right? All of our documentation was already buttoned up. So we had a, you know, we had a really clean set of tools that we could hand over 
to stamps.com. So those guys can go dig and do their due diligence. Uh, the other great thing is, you know, before us, they had acquired a company called Indisha. And um, Indisha is a you know, big competitor of theirs in the space. And we were actually partners with Indisha. And so we also came in with tremendous credibility because the Indisha leadership team was still on board nice. um, and had moved into leadership positions within the broader stamps portfolio. Uh, and so with that, they, you know, they really also were able to help vet us and vouch for us and whatnot and bring us into the fold. Um, I think we were, we weren't the last of their acquisition spree, right? They, they acquired Metapack out of the UK after that. Um, and then um, after Metapack, right, I guess they went, we went quiet on acquisitions for several years. I actually helped run that acquisition team and as well as Global BD. Um, and then I, I left in 2020 and then, you know, in 2021, I guess October of 2021, the Tama Bravo private equity guys took them private. Uh, I think it was the largest um, kind of markup on a public share ever. Um, I, I could be wrong on that, but I, that was my understanding when they went private back in October. So now they're, you know, doing a roll up and, trying to go build kind of a, a back office play, it looks like to me in terms of, you know, really powering the back office e-commerce ecosystem. Yeah, because it's so much more complex. I mean, people don't understand just how complex the logistics side, the picking, the packing, the warehouse management, all the ERP stuff and everything that goes into, here's my product, it needs to go over there. And everything that happens in the middle is just so non-trivial. That back office stuff is super important, no? Yeah, no, I mean, look, we, we had customers that would call us and tell us, you know, we, I, the one I remember most vividly about a year in was a pastor and he, uh, he, he would make his own organic deodorant at home. Um, and he called us one day because we actually had a support line in Austin, you know, next to our, you know, all the exec desks um, right. and told us like, look, I quit my job because you guys, right? I, you know, most pastors have a full-time job and then they preach and he was able to quit his full-time job and, you know, really dedicate his life, you know, to just preaching and then running his, his organic deodorant line um, because we actually helped him be more efficient. And if you kind of think about yeah. 2012, 2013, right, if you were selling on Amazon and Shopify, you were downloading a CSV file of orders, manipulating right. that file to then load it into a, you know, UPS or FedEx or kind of poor postal program. Um, generating labels right and then aligning the, the tracking id back to the order and then breaking that csv up and then trying to upload it back to amazon and shopify and, and god help you if you transposed an order id because all of a yep. sudden then none of your tracking details were right and so just the data process was kind of a four hour a day thing and, and when our software and ShipStation and then shipworks you know other other competitors came along uh you know all of that kind of just manual work went away and they really could focus on just running their business. Let me, let me give you an equivalency for people that listen to the show a lot as well and know my background. We used to, I worked on a portfolio trading desk at Goldman Sachs okay. and we used to literally type in orders B for buy S for sell, you know, a hundred for a hundred shares. And then the Japanese stock code, you're laughing, but we would do it. And then we kind of built our own internal system, which we called SMTM, which stood for show me the money. <laughs> they would <clears throat> feel free to laugh it was funny to us and then you know this is they would send us orders it would come sort of done but then the whole financial service industry just standardized on this thing called fixed protocol and it basically okay. gave a tag and a field for everything and this is essentially some of the help that you were doing as well yep at shipping easy we would just get a digital file we'd never see it it would just get parsed and it would pop into our trading system and it saved 
hours of work, not just on the way in, but on the way out as well. Right. And we, we went from being able to trade, let's say, $200 million a year, I mean, a, a day to like $2 billion a day with no extra effort. Right. And just the change in the scope of that business is the same, right? Same thing. So the pastor got to quit his day job and become a pastor and a deodorant salesperson as opposed to just like a person who's like doing data entry all day. And that stuff really matters. Yeah. It does. It does. It makes a, it makes a world of difference. Now, you know, on the fulfillment side, it doesn't take away the physical steps. You still have sure. to go into your garage or into your warehouse, right? And find the yep. product, get it yeah, to yeah. a packing desk and all that sort of stuff. But at least now, you know, you can go hire a team of people to do that. Um, but what you're not doing is manipulating data. Now that the data is clean coming from Amazon, going back to Amazon, they're satisfied because things are working in a, in a timely manner and they're informed, right? What everybody wants is the data visibility so that expectations are set and met and delivered upon. And if it was going to break in that, that, that the communication solid around it so that the consumer's happy. Yeah. And those guys are not out there using NetSuite either, right? So they no. need any kind of help on the technology side that they can possibly right. get. What was the impetus for starting OnRamp? I mean, you've been kind of on, not on the fringes, but you've been like in the e-commerce. I'm just, you know, drawing a circle around the center. If e-commerce is in the center, you've been around this like for 20 years, it feels like, right? I, um, I, I always wanted to start my own business, um, since I was a kid. Um, and prior to OnRamp, I had had several experiences where I was kind of like one of the, either the first employee hired by the founders or kind of one of the first five or six coming into a company yeah. and then building it. And, you know, I, I really viewed that as kind of my apprenticeship to learn kind of the early stage of things. And so um, post acquisition, I was, you know, I was ready to go leave and go do another startup. and was really kind of circling around a number of ideas, the opportunity to work for Stamps came up in, in, in a different role. And I decided it was, you know, for some family reasons, it was the right thing to do for a few years. And so I did that. And those guys were great. And, you know, I have nothing but immense respect for them. Um, but then, you know, kind of after three or four years, I, I was looking around. And one of the things that I, I loved about Shipping Easy was, you know, working with the e-commerce merchant. Um, we get to help the SMB. We get to help the little guy, right? And Americans love the underdog and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then I'm, I'm a huge student of history and, you know, have studied kind of the evolution of, of freedom and independence going back to, you know, the, the Greek dark, dark ages prior to the city states. And what you can see, right, is that the more independent small business owners, the more people who are able to independently generate their own income, the freer and safer and healthier society is. Um, and you know, that's not just for a country, right? That's for a world. And so I wanted to continue working with, with this customer segment, uh, because I think they're, they're worthy of, of my time. And then what I'd seen it at stamps and, and at shipping easy was, you know, unbeknownst to most people, postage is currency under federal law. So you have to pre-fund a postage balance because there's a thing as a postpaid postage balance. Um, and so we saw people struggle with cash flow, right? Just that, you know, they were, they were playing the game that most Americans do that are starting an early company is, you know, using credit cards and one's maxed out. So they go to the next, they go to the next, they're trying to figure out which one to pay, which one not. And it just seemed to me that in an e-commerce business where we have all this massive data visibility, that the ability to go essentially power that kind of sales turnover, the cash flow that's just captured in that segment of the accounting statement um, that turns over every kind of 15 to 120 days 
was very, very low risk. Um, was it an investment, right? It's, it's not that I'm trying to be a VC with these guys. I'm just trying to go provide them the working capital that they need so they can extract their own cash out of it and go put that money to more valuable, potentially higher risk uses, right? And growing their business, but that they actually have that. More importantly, for a lot of these guys, that that is the the profit of the business is captured in that turnover cycle. So from a an accounting statement perspective, they could be running a you know a million dollars in sales and a 10% profit margin. But from a cash flow perspective, that 10%, that hundred thousand can't be extracted. And so then they can't even pay themselves. And so what I wanted to do is say, hey, look, we're going to free up your capital. If you want to pay yourself a salary, you can now. If you want to put all that back into the business and grow faster, you can choose to do that. But what we're here to do is really help that merchant find you know cash flow sustainability. What was it like for you? You know, because I think about this myself. I said earlier, like I'm, I've got to be ten or fifteen years older than you are, right? And when most people, and they're wrong, but when most people think about startup founders, and in a way, you are a startup founder, right? You're running your own company. Mm-hmm. They think of, you know, a 27-year-old girl who's, you know, just graduated from business school and wants to make Spanx or some kind of thing. Like, this is the idea that most people have in their head. There's very little risk for them because they don't have families. They don't have other responsibilities. They're probably not sending their parents money every month. But you're not that person. And you said, you know, you decided to stay at Stamps a little bit longer for family reasons. So we, we know you have a family. It's none of our business what that was. But what is it like venturing out on your own? At this age, do you know what I mean? Because you know, you know the cash flow problems. You watch it. That's your job. You're on the other side now. But were you concerned as well, thinking like, oh, God, I hope this works kind of thing? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, um, absolutely. So, yes, I have a wife. I have two kids that are teenagers. I'm 50. I don't, I don't know how old you are, Michael, but you know, I'm 50 years old. actually this year, but yeah. <laughs> 102. You look great. <laughs> actually, I'm 57, but go ahead. Okay, so you got a few years on me. Um, you know, I, I was blessed to have a couple exits. So, you know, with the Shipping Easy exit, um, another company that I was the first employee hired by the four founders uh, in the identity theft industry. Um, I spent about six years with CS Identity before going to Shipping Easy. Um, and um, I left when they were about 40 million in revenue. Um, they got into a really stable place. And so I went back to kind of do day one again. But both of those companies exited within a month of each other. So I was blessed to get some nice cash, you know, deposits coming in and, and, you know, topping up the balance sheet. Um, and then blessed to have a wife that wanted to support me in, in pursuing this, right? She's known that I've always wanted to do this. Right. And I, and I have viewed all of these different companies as places to go learn how to do this. Now I can tell you being the founder, it's different than being the guy sitting next to the founder. Um, so I've helped raise money before and I've seen it done. But the stress level is not the same when it's yours versus you're the guy next to the guy <laughs> um, or gal. Um, and so it, it's a different experience. I've, I've put a ton of my own money, not just, you know, not just time, but my own cash sure. into getting this off the ground. Um, you know, and then I am blessed. The team here, we're, we're about 30 people now. Half of us are ex-Shipping Easy ship station. Um, and so we've actually worked together now for a decade just not an on-ramp because it's only been around for a year. Um, and so we, what we have, right, is a real solid team of people with a tremendous amount of trust who've been in the trenches, right, from the early stages through an exit together. So we know what it takes. Um, and, you know, we know each other's foibles and <laughs> idiosyncrasies. 
and, you know, know how to work for it, know how to recognize when people are stressed, but also, you know, forgive when somebody has their blow up, right? Because yep. we've just seen it and been there and, and we know that we all come good on the other side. So um, in that regard, right, being it, being an on-ramp is a lot of it is with a, with a lot of people you have immense trust and respect for because you've been working together for so long. I understand. Can you run me through this process? I really want to know how this works, right? So let's say I'm running an e-commerce business. I'm doing okay. Mm -hmm. Right. And, but you're right. Like the, the way that I get paid and the way that I have to make payments, there's probably some mismatch on my balance sheet and my income statement and I can't extract the profit. So not even just to pay myself, but maybe to pay my suppliers. Right. So I have cash flow issues. Correct. So I come to you and I think like, I'm still, I'm growing fast enough. I know that I'm actually earning a profit, but I don't have access to it. Right. So I want to apply. So I apply to you and let's say I need 200 grand. I'm just making up a number. I don't even know why I picked that. It just feels like it's not that much money, but it's more than 25 grand. Yeah. Right. What are the upfront costs? Let's say you say yes, not you, but let's say OnRamp says yes. So I, I get to, and I'm borrowing money. Yeah. You're not investing right. in my business. I'm just borrowing money Correct. from you. Do I get 200 free and clear? Do I pay a fee on that? Like what's, and what, how's that fee structure determined? Sure. Yeah. So what, what you do to, to request cash from on ramp is you got to come sign up. Um, you're going to connect your Amazon, Shopify, big commerce, WooCommerce, right? Whatever, wherever you sell online. Um, and what we're going to do then is, is ingest your historic sales data, right? Which gives us a tremendous amount of detail around the performance of your business and the performance of the products in your product catalog and kind of how those sales have evolved over time. Yep. Um, and we're going to build a, a forecast. We're building a forward-looking forecast off of that data. We're also having you connect your bank. And so we can look at your, your banking transactions. You know, this helps us validate that, you know, the Amazon sales are, are converting to deposits, right? We need right. to make sure yeah. that's happening. Same with Shopify and whatnot. Um, it, it's, you know, we use that then to, to make an offer. So let's just say we make that $200,000 offer. Right. You know, we look at working capital, as a necessary expense in the business, but there's a percentage, right? We're not going to loan, depending on the channel, more than, you know, I'd say we probably cap between 40 and 50% of your whatever period of revenue we're underwriting against, call it 90 days. So now typically we actually loan about somewhere between 15 and 20% of your 90 day revenue. So in your example, um, that'd be a million dollars and million dollars expected revenue for the next 90 days. We're going to loan you 200,000. And then we charge a small percentage of that top line revenue as the fee. So we are not interest bearing. Um, we are not necessarily the most low cost source of capital, but then we're also not loaning to, you know, merchants that are, you know, $50 million businesses with CFOs with tight accounting standards, right. That are dialed in that banks can loan to, um, and, but one of the things we like about our, our model is from a regulatory perspective, one of the concerns about cash advances, right, is that the fee is charged and collected up front, regardless of the repayment timing, whereas our fee is charged as you sell. And so if you sell more quickly or if you opt to pay down more quickly, you can actually reduce the fee um, as a percentage of sales because you're reducing the principal balance, sure. which then gives us a kind of fee-based approach that that mimics more the 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 traits of of interest right where the less yeah. time the money's outstanding the less expense there is right. which feels like a fair thing right because it reduces our risk if the merchant pays back faster why do we care right because you're not you're not the only provider of this service but why do we right. care that there's no interest 
right? Because at some point, if I'm making, if I've borrowed money over a term and I have to make monthly payments, like I can do the, I can do the algebra, right? It's right. not interest per se. It, like, is there, is there some regulatory reason, some contractual reason, some other reason why we don't want to call this interest or is it just marketing? Do you know what I mean? I'm curious. Actually, I think it's really about trying to align the expense with how the business owner thinks about running their business. Most business owners think about their financial statements and their performance in terms of percentage, right? So I know that my gross margin is 50%, right. and I know that my net margin is 10%. Yep. And so if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I want to borrow 20% of my top line. Um, and I say to them, great, I'm going to do that. And here's a, let's just make it simple, a 1% of top line fee. Well, great, I'm going to get 20% of my top line. And for that, I'm now going to be able to extract out instead of 10% profit, nine, because I've given up 1% of that, right, that top line in fees. But now I have that $90,000 in my pocket, whereas before it was completely trapped in my inventory turnover cycle. And so the, the way we structure that, the reason we structure that is to really make it simple for the merchant to evaluate. Is that a fair trade? Is the cost that I'm being imposed upon really reflective of the value I can get out of that money? And the challenge with interest is um, unless you can get to an interest rate that becomes essentially easy to calculate monthly, let's just say, hey, if we could charge 12% interest, that's 1% a month. Yep. But if I have to charge 17% interest, well, okay, what is that? Right now you're doing all these, this mental gymnastics and it's really hard to know where you're going to end up. So what, what we did was really kind of evaluate what was the, the pricing we would have to charge based on our cost of capital. And then how do we structure that in a way that becomes really, really simple for the merchant to evaluate and say $200,000, I'm going to pay in, in our example, right? 1% of that million. Yep. It's going to cost me $10,000 for 90 to, you know, 90 days to six months. Um, and I don't have to go spend hours with a bank and wait 60 days and fill out 400 pieces of paper to be told no, by the way, <laughs> you know, I can go to on-ramp and, and in, you know, two minutes, connect my store and 30 seconds, connect a bank within an hour, I have an answer. Wow. Um, and you know, but the same day or next day I have cash. And what is your cost of capital? So where do you get your funds from to then, I don't know what the right word is, lend to these SMBs and these e-commerce providers? Yeah, so you know, it, in starting a software company in the fintech space, it's been a it's been a unique challenge. It, we don't just raise equity dollars, right? The traditional you know That's go to VC. That's kind of what I want and, to know. Yeah, go right? ahead. Yeah, so we we we've raised VC dollars, um, and you know we're well financed to go build our business and our software and our go to market approach. But we've also had to go raise credit dollars, so that was a whole new world to me. Um, and, you know, we've got a great team here uh, on our ca head of capital markets is a, a guy with 40 years of Wall Street experience who, who's been nothing but credit markets. Right. And so he's been a tremendous asset in doing that for us. And so we work with private equity groups um, who are essentially giving us, you know, lines of credit that we then use to deploy with these merchants. And uh, we then manage, you know, to a set of covenants and terms with them in terms of the return and, and the turnover. Um, and so, you know, we, we essentially have two separate lines of capital. One is for building the business and one is for financing operations for our clients. So this is where things get really interesting to me, right? And I want to come back to the cost of capital too. I understand the private equity angle here. You're raising money and saying, we're going to raise, we're going to use that money to then build our business, the business side of the business, writing the software, doing all that stuff, right. hiring a sales team. But the money that we lend out is going to be money that we get from private equity. That's looking around and going, huh? I can make 8% over the next 50 years on average in the stock market, or I'm making up a number, yeah? 
I can make 12% a year lending to e-commerce people who are trying to better manage their cash flow and their, the relationship between their balance sheet and their income statement. So I'm happy to make that trade, right? Because that's all it is. It's just a, right. it's a trade, right? But yeah. do you ever think of the same thing as well? This is something that's so interesting to me. You're sitting there, and I used to, th- and let me give you the context. So I used to think about this w- with Amazon, right? Amazon runs this business called AWS. So if you're a startup, you can use their backend services, right? AWS is pretty amazing. It makes starting a company a thousand yeah. times easier than it used to be. But Amazon can see, like, if you need another S3 because you're just signing up for it. They know, they have hints that your business is growing really fast. And they actually right. have a whole thing, AWS for startups, and they kind of run a quasi investment business as well you kind of have access to a lot of similar data. Like, you know, if I borrow 200 grand from you and then I don't ever need to borrow from you again, well, something radical has changed in my business. Either I'm out of business or I'm growing so fast that maybe Amazon is going to buy me. And you said like, you're not a VC, but you're seeing all this stuff happen. Do you ever think, Hey, maybe we should also be strategic about investing in some of these businesses as well. Not you know, particularly after we lend and we get our capital return, we lend and then get our capital return and then we don't lend anymore, but they keep growing. Do you know what I mean? Do you see that as an opportunity as well? Or you're just not, you're not interested. Uh, it's not that I'm not interested. It's that, you know, to, to build a business, you have to focus. Yep. And, um, you know, I think longer term, there is an opportunity, you know, to go in and look at, in, you know, investments and or could we, you know, develop, you know, VC relationships or, you know, in relationships with people who want to, in, you know, be investors in e-commerce businesses and, and act as a referral agent, right? Um, right now, you know, we're, we're still early stage and we're still building and, and honing our product, right? Honing our go-to-market. And, you know, my objective is to get this business to a place where, you know, we can take those additional risks. Um, but, you know, if you, if you, if you expand your area of focus too soon, then you may not succeed in any area. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think we're still in that stage of the business where our focus really needs to be on this working capital turnover. Um, and then over time, right, we might expand that into, you know, a broader range of financial services. I think that would just be a natural organic evolution of the business. Um, but for right now, you know, we're really focused on solving the working capital problem, you know, to your point around, you know, what happens to the business, they're not borrowing from us. We really think of it in two ways. Um, it's shipping easy. We saw this all the time. We actually had a, a free program, a free version of our app. If you were like what we call the starter, right? Less than 50 shipments a month. Um, and when we looked at churn, right, we, we saw churn happen for two reasons. One, in, in shipping easy, it was infant mortality, right? It's, it's just the unfortunate nature of starting a business. It's a really hard thing to do. And a lot of them, you know, unfortunately, just don't make mortality. it. On the startup yes. side, not on the infant side. Yeah. Okay, so on the startup side, yes. On the startup clear. side. Maybe not a good metaphor. I just got nervous that babies were dying um, and people had a business about it. I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, you know, the, the other side at Shipping Easy, right, they'd outgrow us. They would grow into a true ERP system, yep. right, yep. where they would yep. need those tools. Um on-ramp, we see the same thing, right? We're not working with the starters at on-ramp because they just don't have enough velocity yet. Um, but what we do see is that somewhere between 5 and $20 million in top-line revenue, a business is forced to hire a CFO or a head of finance. It's too complicated after that. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and that person, it might take them six months to a year to really get all the books and financials and everything cleaned up and through an audit. 
but that person has been paid to do what OnRamp does, which is to go to a right. bank and find a cost of capital, yeah. right? And get a line of credit and to optimize when to draw and repay prior to that person being there. That's what, that's what OnRamp's doing, right? We're actually helping build that discipline around how you think about working capital and how it positions within your capital stack in the business. So do you offer analytics to your customers as well? Do you know what I'm saying? Because we, you have, we, you're building your yeah. own analytics. You're doing your own analysis. So you got this guy that was doing credit on Wall Street for four decades, right? So you know how this works. You must have internal tools. But even for your starter teams, your starter guys and gals, right, that just don't have enough money yet. But if you could get them to a point where they can look at the analytics and say, hey, you know what? I think we're ready now for on-ramp services because we've hit whatever threshold is that you've determined is real. Do you do that too? Not yet. That is on our roadmap. Okay. Um certainly something we want to do. And yes, with the data we have, right, the ability to go position, um, you know, some streamlined analytics tools to the merchants to really help them kind of how their business is yeah. performing. Um, and, and, you know, what, what, what's my best product? What's my worst? Which products are growing the fastest? Do I see margin erosion? All that right. kind of stuff that, that we're looking at internally. Um, those are things that we want to turn around and make merchant facing. Uh, we haven't done that yet, but you know, I think that's probably something we'll be doing early Got next it. year. Um, because we do think it's help, it'll, it should help the merchant better run their business. And then it might be a set of tools that for the merchants we can't say yes to today uh, could really help them, you know, hone their business and get to a point where, where we can be of, of value. To so them. in the last, who knows, I don't even know how to measure this anymore, 20 years, 25 years. I mean, interest rates globally have just been either low or zero nominally. Yeah, real interest mm -hmm. rates have been even lower. But with a little bit of an inflation scare at the sort of middle to the beginning of this year, you see the Fed starting to raise rates, right? So the Fed path, obviously, is very important in determining not just short-term rates, but longer-term rates, too, and just the way the yield curve looks, right? How does that impact the right. way you think about this business? Or is, is your lending so short-term, right? You said 90 days, 180 days, that you're not that concerned about that? Well, we're certainly concerned about it. I, I don't think that we have... I think we have the room to absorb some of that. And then because our lending is short term, um, you know, look, if the Fed raises, if they pull a Saturday night special, Paul Volcker again, and take rates to 20%, great, we'll have a short term impact. Right. But then we will have, you know, we will just have to reprice, right? And we'll just have to pass right. that in. And because the note's going to close in 90 days, we know that, you know, 91 days from now, we will have solved for that problem with the next advance being just priced differently. Um, that works to our advantage. By the way, I don't think we'll have a full pressure. <laughs> we have $300 trillion in more debt than we did back then, and the government would collapse. But, um, but you know, I certainly remember what, what they did back in the early 80s to, to, to fix that problem, right? And I think we're in a, you know, unfortunately, we're in a similar position again now. It's going to take some, some, you know, distasteful medicine, if you will, <laughs> to we correct to for it. Some, uh, some froth out of, the, um, out of the market and also out of the economy. Yeah. Um, when you like nobody operates in a vacuum, right? And the e-commerce <clears throat> ecosystem just keeps getting more complicated and more complex and more partners in it every day. Do you look at some of the aggregators like the most famous one, like Thrasio, right? Who goes out and tries to buy businesses and then aggregate them. Are they also a channel for lending as well? Or are those businesses too, what's the right word? Um, mature to care about the products that a company like OnRamp is offering? And do you work together with them as well, thinking like, hey, maybe they know some companies that need your, do you know what I mean? Like, how does all that work from a partnership perspective? 
So, you know, Thrasio and those guys are interesting, right? They think they raised $12 billion in <laughs> 2021. Um, and, you know, which I think allows them to buy kind of one to 2% of the U.S. e-commerce market. So it, it still doesn't make a dent. Um, so I don't, I don't view them as, you know, kind of an existential threat to our ability to go find customers. Um, I will say, you know, look, I, th I think it's great that there are these aggregators out there that give um, the small business owner an opportunity to find an exit. What I dislike about them is that the multiple, like the kind of, they have a, an, an adjusted EBITDA number, if you will, that yep. they kind of look at. And if I understand correctly, they're kind of offering you somewhere between 80 and 150% of your annual adjusted EBITDA number. And I, I think that's just far too low. And I think, you know, one of the reasons merchants have taken that is that because financial tools like OnRamp haven't been there, and these guys have had the this cash conversion cycle problem, that they look at that and say, man, I have not paid myself in two years. I'm, you know, my accountant tells me I've got a business that should be ginning off a hundred thousand dollars a year in profit to me, but I can't get it out. And this guy's willing to give me a hundred, 150. And I'm just going to go say, great, take the business. I'm going to take a nice long vacation with the family and then go figure out what's yeah. next for me. Whereas what I'd like to see these guys say is hold on with on ramp, you know, I can't get that hundred out because they're taking a bit of it, but I'm getting 90 out. And now if somebody's offering me 150, well, screw that. I'm going to earn 180 in two years if I don't grow the business. So I'd like to see those guys continue. You know, I'd like to see the Thrasios continue to acquire these companies, but I'd like the, the merchant to be able to sit in a place that says, hold on, I'm not making this decision out of a sense of desperation or, or just, you know, exhaustion. I'm actually doing it based on I've, I'm now running my business in a more sophisticated way that gives me a, a, a broader right. set of choices. Um, and then I'm going to accept what is a viable offer versus just, you know, any kind of, you know, any kind of boat in a storm, if you will. Yeah, I, I get it. Um, I have my own view on what the aggregators are doing. If you pay somebody, <clears throat> if you're like quietly valuating their business at 11 times revenues and paying them four times revenues, it feels a little problematic to me. And I'd rather see somebody come in right. and, like you said, let's like lend them money. Maybe the rates are a little bit high, but to be fair, you know, Michael Milken basically built his entire career around this idea of you'll never be able to borrow money to build MCI, but I can fund you because I know that we need another phone company and what you're going to build, I can fund because you can afford the 12% or 13% interest. And this is the whole idea behind junk bonds. Right. And I'm not making the equivalency between on-ramp and a junk bond, but to be fair, is it really that far away? Because you're doing the same thing. You're basically going, we can fund your thing. We can, we can help you grow, but a bank's never going to lend you money at these rates. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, the banks don't know how to do it. They can't yeah. move fast enough. They don't move at the yep. pace of e-commerce. Right. Um, so, you know, again, you have to get to the point where you have that VP finance CFO on your team and, and you know, a few e-commerce businesses start with that person on the team. And that person might just go straight to a bank because they already have everything dialed in. But the far, the vast majority don't, right? They, that sophistication is, they, they're forced to learn it as the business gets to a certain size of revenue. Just like, you know, it was, it didn't take much of a sophisticated process to go run a shipping operation out of a garage or a thousand square foot warehouse. But when you got to the point where I need 10,000 square feet, you don't pick one item at a time anymore, right? Now you're, you have a pick, you have a, right. a pick list, right? And you're going off and processing a hundred orders and then you're coming back and you're, boxing 100 orders and then you're labeling 100 orders so that it's just a more efficient process um and you know and, and as part of that right you probably hire somebody who knows what they're doing and they're coming in saying hey 
you can't use this software anymore. It's time for a better, right. a better tool. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's where we fit, right? We're, we're providing capital where I think is a very fair price um, to people that are, you know, to, to businesses that are harder to underwrite at this stage of their business that have inherently a lot more risk, right. And volatility in, in sales. Um, and it's our job to then, you know, help provide some discipline around how they think about spend and think about repayment. Um, but then also to structure a product that, you know, because of the way we bill, if your business slows down, your payments slow down, right? So we're not a, Hey, you have to, on that hundred thousand, you have to pay $33,000 at the end of each month, right? We're not a 30 day payment term. Um, what we are is a percentage of sales and we actually collect upon deposit. So we know that sometimes deposits are delayed. And so if your deposits delayed, your payments delayed, we're fully aligned in that regard. Um, and then when the, when the deposits come good, then, you know, we expect to get our, 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 our share of that based on the terms that we set up front. Um, and in doing so, right, then we're really aligned with, you know, the ebb and flow of yeah. a merchant's business uh, so that we're really helping in. And then, you know, Christmas is coming, right? It, it sounds crazy to say it. it's August and 102 degrees outside right now. But, you know, our merchants are, ge are gearing up, right? They're putting those inventory orders in right now. Um, and the beauty of that, right, is we can see that coming. Now, you know, we also have some merchants who, do, who have no Christmas lift. And so we're not giving them the benefit of a Christmas lift, you know, loan right now, because that's not going to show up for them. They might be, you know, a, a, a June yep. spike, a right? And thing. so knows, yeah. those guys, when, yeah, when February hits, right, we're going to be, you know, gearing up for those guys. Whereas the Christmas team, right, those guys were, were bringing those numbers down because it's now a slower time of the year. Um, and so we're helping Do optimize you look at that. other kind of financial services products as well. In other words, you know, you talked before about focus and I always wonder, like, if you're in this business and you're seeing all this data, what else can you do? It's early days, right, for on-ramp. So I understand this idea of focusing. But are there other are there other financial services products you can offer your merchants as well, like insurance, like things that they'll need to pay for, that they can pay for with a little bit of the money that you offer them? Do you know what I mean? Or is that still outside the scope of things that you really want to get involved in today? I think it's outside of what we want to get involved in today. It's certainly part of what we want to get involved in longer term, right? That we will be a broader financial yeah. solutions provider to the merchant um, and, and probably very likely a broader product provider to the merchant. Um, but, you know, today, you know, the focus is the working capital piece. And, and the nice thing about that, right, is, you know, money's fungible. So if I'm financing yeah. your working capital, great. Do you need insurance? Well, there are people out there who do that. What I keep looking for opportunities and, you know, we did it at Shipping Easy and we're doing it on ramp. The opportunity I'm looking for is how do we go purpose build a product that, that addresses a specific need of the e-commerce merchant? So if you look at most of the competitors to on ramp, um, especially the non-digital, you know, MCA, Merchant Cash Advance providers, a Merchant Cash Advance has been around for hundreds of years, right? Like this is not a new product. Lending is in the Old Testament, right? I'm, I'm not, you know, crossing the chasm <laughs> with this. Um, but if, but if you look at it, it's not a product built for e-commerce, right? It's a product that's evolved around retail or other, right. or other business outlets that has been shoehorned into the e-commerce industry without really reflecting the realities of this industry. And what, what I did with OnRamp was really, you know, in 2019, 2020, before I launched the company, I was actually loaning my own personal money to a number of different small business merchants that I knew. Um, I had a developer friend who just basically gave me the ability to connect into a couple of stores and suck in data that I could then just drop into Excel and literally right. lend by hand um, and track by hand everything that was going on. 
and and then purpose built this turnover product exactly around how those merchants were turning over their capital, looking at their QuickBooks, looking at their cash flows, inventory turnover cycles, sales cycles, that sort of thing. And then looked at how that data would reflect those things so that we could go deliver a product that truly is custom for e-commerce. Now, is it alone? Yes. Is it, you know, is that been around for a long time? Yes. The way we deploy, collect, track and recycle, um, is unique in the way we price, right? In fact, I don't think you can see, I don't think we, we've yet to see a competitor who prices the way do we do. And, you know, and we, when we were negotiating credit terms with the different private equity groups out there, one of the things that we were told was that we really had a novel approach to this cool. um, that was something they hadn't seen before in pricing and that they actually felt from a regulatory perspective was far more aligned with kind of the, the ambitions of the regulators in terms of, the ability for that merchant to reduce their fee based on accelerated repayment. Got it. Can we talk a little bit about just about e-commerce in general, since you're so involved in it and you've been involved in it for quite some time, what percentage, you know, again, you're old enough to remember as Amazon was growing, just this idea that e-commerce was going to take over stores. Malls were just going to end up being ghost towns. No one was ever going to leave their house to shop and they would just like think that they need more toilet paper and it would show up at their house. We know this isn't true anymore. Do you have some idea about like what percentage of retail sales in the U.S. are e-commerce? And and also like when you look at the e-commerce marketplace, like the whole idea of this show is to just learn. Like we don't think it's solved yet. We think marketplaces are there, but like that's inning one for the way that e-commerce should look. When you step back and look at it, particularly and I'm curious about this percentage to start with. How would you evaluate like what the state of it is, what the status of it is, and where you think it's going to go? Is that fair? Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. No, I I, I definitely have an opinion on this. Um, I'll, going all the way back to the malls, actually. So, look, I think e-commerce in the U.S. and I, and by the way, we're very U.S. centric right now, yeah. right? We're yeah. early stage. We're gonna we're gonna win in this market before we figure out global markets. Um, and I and I hope that you know that we're that we're successful enough that we get to go solve this at a global level as well. But for right now, we're U.S. focused. I'm going to keep my my response here on the U.S. Please. market. I think the U.S. market is running about 17, 17 and a half percent of all retail is e-commerce, okay. uh, excluding like ticket and airline sales. Right. So yeah, just yeah. let's talk about traditional physical retail. Yep. Um, you know, COVID, we thought might have, you know, essentially stair stepped that up. But what it really did, it was the Campbell soup problem, right? It's a non-perishable item. You gave a coupon. And so all you did was just pull a whole bunch of sales forward. And then next quarter when the coupon was gone, sales collapsed. Um, and so we're seeing that right now, right? We're, we're back on the, the growth curve that, you know, we would right have projected so for 2019. Right? Like, sorry to yeah. interrupt you, but like if the stock price is any indication, if, if the Shopify stock price is any indication and Amazon the same way, it went all the way up until like, 2020 now it's like right back down and if you could just draw a straight line like this it's like this never happened. right back right, right. mm -hmm. exactly yeah Go ahead. and so you know it's it's interesting like you know really in the thing about forecasting and everything else um how much of the COVID era you, you kind of just have to throw away and say hey look let's just take 2019 carry it forward and that's where you're kind of looking right. at so you know look i i think e-commerce has a tremendous amount of room to grow um one of the things that that always struck me as incredibly strange um, and, and just a, a, a massive failure on the part of traditional retailers. You know, Amazon, what, seven years ago announced they were going to have a warehouse. They wanted warehouses within 20 miles of 95% of the U.S. population. Everybody's house, basically. Right. But guess who already had that? 
Simon Malls. Yeah, I know. Simon. Right. And guess what? You don't want to. You don't want to talk to me about Simon Malls. But please go ahead. Yeah, because but, they because but those at guys the intersection had... of every highway in every town and in every city and in every state in America, whether it was. You know, I don't know the, what the highways are in Texas, but like in Connecticut, where there was 95 crossing 87 in New York, there was a Simon Mall there. Sorry, go ahead. They were yeah. everywhere. Just didn't get it. Everywhere. And, and those guys had the opportunity that, and I, I don't know, how, I mean, the technology and infrastructure required was going to be a big challenge, right? But you had the world's best catalog at every one of your malls. Yeah, already. And people within a 20-mile drive, if you could have just figured out how to aggregate that inventory across PacSun and Oakley and yeah, and everybody already shopped there, Nordstrom. so they knew you and trusted you. Right, and then said, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna drive orders to Nordstrom, yep. and we'll either then have the person deliver, or the merch, or the customer can just drive in and pick up curbside, right? Yep. Which COVID proved we could deploy we that very that. very quickly. Yep. Those guys, you know, had a great chance to beat Amazon at their own game twenty years ago, um, and, and it's you know it's unfortunate they didn't. Now, I don't think physical retail ever goes away. Never, right? People want to touch." There's a tactile thing it's to social. it. Social, they want to. There's just shop a browsing. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Right. And so, you know, I, I think that's always going to be a part of it. You know, I, I do think it's very exciting to see, like the what is it, the Bonobos guys and and the Warby Parker, right? Yeah. Who've who have taken this really cool retail and e-commerce approach and and put them together in a new way. I think grocery, right, a huge part of e-commerce uh, growth is going to come from grocery and what Amazon's done with Whole Foods is incredibly interesting. Um, can, you know, the pharmacy can world, I ask this, right? What they just we don't live in yeah. the States, right? But of course we watch the news okay. and I saw Amazon buy Whole Foods. I've never been into a Whole Foods. So that's how long I've been out of the United States, right? What are they going to do with it? Or you, you've already commented, like, what are they going to do that's going to make the Whole Foods experience so much better or Amazonified? Do you know what I mean? Like, what's the plan there? You know, I, I I can't speak to the plan. I will say Whole Foods is headquartered here in Austin, right? Yeah. So it's a it's an it's a it's a, a marquee Austin brand like Adele. Um, you know, there was I think a lot of turmoil early in the purchase with a lot of the grocery employees, right? Because Whole Foods had a far different culture than Amazon. <laughs> <He's>, um, <laughs> he says he says non ironically. <laughs> yeah, but they've they've managed to to, to bridge it. Um, it's you know now if like. As we this microphone, right? We tried a different set of microphones; they didn't work for some podcasts before, so we returned it. And the Amazon return is, hey, if you just drive it to the Whole Foods, they'll just take it, right? I mean, that was dead simple, easy, right? We didn't have to rebox it. We could take all that stuff into the Whole Foods, and they and we had a big box of stuff. They're like, scan, 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 scan. Okay, going back to your credit card. Um, you know, are you hungry? Because here's the grocery store. <laughs> um, and so I think you know that's been. Yeah, exactly. That's been incredibly interesting to watch. Um, it's a, it's an interesting way for Amazon to drive foot traffic. Um, it gives them the ability, right, to then drive their entry into the grocery world. Um, you know, speaking of grocery, you know, the other probably most innovative grocery chain in, in America is HEB, which is headquartered in San Antonio. Um, now it's a small, it's it's a grocery store chain like a Safeway or a Kroger yeah. or or whatnot. Um, they're only 300 stores, but they are the most profitable per store grocery chain and the most innovative in the U.S. Um, and so what's, you know, and they actually have a different chain called Central Market that competes with Whole Foods uh, just under a different brand. Um, and, and you see a lot of interesting things what they're doing in grocery delivery. They bought a company called Favor, which was yep. one of the kind of Instacart yep. players, right? Because they wanted to make sure they had that toehold. 
Um, and so I think, you know, what we, what we see in Texas, right, there's a lot of the innovation happening in the, in the grocery world. Um, you know, now the, the player that's got to go figure this out is, is Walmart yeah. because Walmart, you know, unbeknownst to most people is actually a massive grocery massive. store. It's not yeah, just massive. the dry goods, right? They're, they've moved in the grocery space 15, 20 years ago in a real hard way. And they just haven't caught up to grocery delivery yet. So Walmart, again, super interesting. And I actually, on one of my other shows, I spoke to a woman from India who was actually in Silicon Valley when Walmart really started to build walmart.com. And then obviously I believe that they acquired a company called Jet for like $4 billion to try to really understand how that works. And I feel like Walmart's coming on strong, yeah? But again, it's in the same vein as Amazon. But again, to get back to the Simon Malls thing, Walmart as well, their stores are warehouses to be fair, right? And the Sam's... Wholesale, like Sam's yeah, Club, was the Sam's Club. Sorry, same thing, right? They should be killing this, and I do have a feeling the, the you know the Waltons are they're very um, deliberate about the way they behave, and they're some of the wealthiest people in the United States, but in the world as well. But I get the feeling that like they're just slowly but surely and deliberately and methodically building their online business as well, and at some point they're going to end up being a lot bigger part of e-commerce than they are today. What, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I would completely agree. I think they face some significant challenges. Um, you know, for the, from the e-commerce business owners that I speak to that, that, tr- that either have sold on Walmart, sell on Walmart, or have been unable to get on Walmart, a lot of the challenges have been around, like, you know, brand registry. What Amazon does with the brand registry to allow you to create your own brand and protect that brand from other people coming in to sell your branded products is, is really powerful. And Walmart's failing there um, or I don't, I, maybe it's not fair to say they just failing. haven't, they haven't built that properly they're still yet. trying to go build the tools yeah, yeah it's it's a difficult tool Very. to build right and it's difficult to enforce and so it, it's not a it's not something you just go you know turn on a piece of software and it's solved for you um, and so they're, they're, they're trying to go learn that. I think they've been very methodical in how they bring on new merchants, right? They're, they're their merchant catalog. I think they're now over a hundred thousand, but you know, Amazon, I think signs up, you know, a million a year. Now, most of those never sell a right. product. So, you know, different thing, but you know, I think Walmart to get there. Walmart is, you know, now working with some other groups to make sure that they can essentially convert their delivery warehouses into a competitor to FBA, I which I think is incredibly question, yeah. important. Are yeah. we going to get FBW? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I, you know, and it, it would make sense, right? I mean, Walmart's got a, they are an amazing logistics organization yeah. um, in terms of the things that they can do, right? And and the, and the things that they do to help, you know, in natural disasters here in the U.S. and hurricanes and stuff right. like that, where Walmart trucks are rolling in with water and diapers and all that kind of stuff when, when communities have been wiped out. It's, it's incredible. Um, so, you know, immense respect for what they've built, um, but they've got a ways to go in what they're building in the e-commerce world. Um, if it was it Mark Lore, who was the, the CEO of jet.com, right. Was in there. I, I don't know if he, I know he stayed a for a while. I don't know if he's still after. there or not. It was, a, I think it was right. a $4 billion sale. And he was like, I've only been at this for like 16 months or something. Yeah. Two years. It wasn't that long. He was like 4 billion. <laughs> Yours. Where's my yeah. office again? <laughs> I'll be back from the Bahamas in about six weeks. Just tell me where I sit <laughs> in Arkansas. Just tell me where. Exactly. So, you know, look, it, they should be a viable marketplace. I think they will. Um, Amazon, you know, back to the, the mall thing, Amazon did announce that they're trying to cut it or they, maybe they cut a deal with yeah. the Simon guys recently to try to start extending that, that product catalog from the mall for their same day delivery. 
right? Because the products are there. And if I want a pair of sunglasses that's sitting at the Oakley store in the mall, boom, you know, there's this Amazon flex truck, right? Yeah. That's going to go just swing by, pick it up, drop it off my house. And okay, great. I, I mean, I don't want to go to the mall. I know that I'm not, I'm not alone in that, but I'm unusual yeah. <laughs> in that, right? You're not the mall <laughs> demo. But what do you think? Do exactly. You, do you really think, and Austin is actually maybe the perfect, perfect place to test this, right? Because it's a city, but it's not a gigantic, it's not Manhattan, right? It's not LA, which is different than Manhattan right. as well. But it's like, do you really want stuff in 15 minutes often enough to make 15 minute delivery important? Uh, um, okay, so I'm handy around the house. And I, like, when I bought a Tesla, I installed my own in-home wall charger, right? Because I like yep. to do that kind of stuff. And, in, in, and for the life of me, I know that anytime I'm going to do a project, right, I'm going to build something, it's going to turn into 16 trips to the freaking <laughs> Home Depot. Um, and so in that world, yes, because I'm tired of getting in the car and driving to the Home Depot and all that stuff. But in, for the, most of this stuff, no, right? I, it, same day, next day, two days. I, I'll, I'll, my approach to e-commerce is once I have a brand that I like, and I'll give an example, I won't, I won't use their name. But there's a brand of protein that I really that, that I like. I've got a 15 year old son who likes to work lift, yep. lift weights. He uses it. Um, they sell on Amazon and they sell on their site. But go to Amazon; it's the same prices on their site because if if they raise the price on Amazon higher than their site, Amazon gets mad at you, right? They they have policies right. against that. But the challenge here is that Amazon's charging a commission, and then you know there's the FBA fees. If I go to their website and buy direct, they actually charge me for shipping, and I'm like scratching my head saying, "Hold on, that shipping cost." I know how much it costs because I've run right. shipping companies, right? It, and I know the fulfillment work, right? But that more than offsets the commission you're paying Amazon. So if you would just not charge me shipping, I would actually not care if there was two days. Right. I, you know, if you want to say yeah. it's going to be a week, right? Great. Let it be a week. I'm, I'm ordering this stuff right. in advance. I don't care. I'd rather give you the money direct. But now what happens, right, is that they've optimized for Amazon. And I just don't feel I should be paying them for shipping. And I'll go to Amazon and I've already paid my prime fee. So I'm going to get my free shipping and it just becomes easy that way. Um, so I'd like to see more merchants really think about, you know, how they comply with Amazon while not disincentivizing, you know, the, the e-commerce buyer to go to, to, to go to them direct. Because I think, you know, a lot of Americans would like to go to the small business owner direct and feel like that their shopping is, is making a difference yeah. in that way. Um, and yet so many people just kind of say, okay, great. We're going to let Amazon own it. Yeah. And look, let's be fair. You said this a little bit offline, but let's say it online too. Right. And I think you said a little bit at the beginning, I'm not nearly as libertarian as you <laughs> when it comes to, no, no. And I'm not joking about it either. Everyone has a right to believe what they believe. I believe that actually very strongly, but I will come down with you on this. And that is that I think that we're all freer if we're running our own businesses yeah. because because, and I do this all the time, right? So I live this. If I walk up to a new juice stand and there's a guy there in his 40s, I'm presuming he's not an employee. That's just my presumption, right or wrong. Right. Because if, if he wasn't the owner or if she wasn't the owner, they would hire somebody who was 18 to do this, right? Right. This is what I'm thinking. But I always ask, are you the owner? Because I'm super happy to give the owner, even if the juice is not perfect, the three fifty for the juice or the three ninety nine because I know exactly where that money's going rather than giving it to like, you know, Juice Jumbo or whatever sits right next door. That's a chain that's you know nationwide. Right. So I completely agree with you on this. But do you think, and what you're doing is trying to facilitate that as well. But when you look at the e-commerce market 
are you concerned at all that you're just going to get like five gigantic marketplaces or do you believe what I believe and that this whole thing is cyclical and that as they get bigger and bigger, people are going to want to go smaller and smaller, partially for the reason that we just talked about, but also because they're very specific products that they want. And it's hard to find them in a place where discovery is so difficult. Does that make sense? I mean, Amazon's one of the discovery game, right? That's why they're big. It's the world's number one product search engine. And they've done a really good job of helping you find that product you're looking for and having the catalog to browse. But, but, I, and maybe discovery is the wrong word because you're right. They've, they've spent a ton of money on search, right, and, and discovery. But I hate when I'm shopping in a physical store, right, and I'm like, I really want those shoes. And someone's like, you need four extra pairs of laces. And everyone who buys these shoes buys, like, don't, just don't bother me when I'm shopping. Right? It's the recommendation right. engine part of it that I think that needs to get quieter. I, and smaller shops don't do that. That's what I mean. Like, do you see a way where big marketplaces kind of lose a little bit of leverage? Or from your perspective, do you think that's just going to keep going on? I think if you look at the, the arc of history, right, the, the, the big tech guys, Amazon, Walmart, right, eventually are going to get smacked down by the U.S. government. Um, and, and some things are going to change in, in, in terms of just the market dominance they have from an antitrust perspective. Interesting. Um, Interesting. I, I also think the market will push that way as well. Um, you know, my goal with on-ramp, right, is to just to increase the optionality, right? That, that they're, yeah. it's, it's not that everybody should be an e-commerce business owner. It's that if that's what you want to pursue, that's, let's give you the tools to do that and, and, yep. and make it as efficient and easy as possible for those that want to, to do so. Um, but not everybody should. And to your point, right, I want everybody to have the, the choices that they, they get to make the choice they want and, and have choices available to them. Um, so they can do what, you know, what's best for them in their lives and pursue their passions. Um, in terms of, you know, just the marketplace dominance, I think there's always going to be a place for it. But I do think that, you know, I mean, Shopify, I think is, I, I and I'm not saying this from any inside knowledge, I think eventually Shopify, big commerce, right, guys that have these, these carts with tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands or, or, or more merchants are, are going to want to continue to work on discoverability. How are they going to go help those merchants sell more uh, and find more customers and really make that a more efficient experience? And in doing so, right, that they're going to help that small business owner um, in their way. And, and so I think that's, I think that's going to happen. And I think that, you know, with what we see the U.S. government having done to railroads back in the, you know, 1880s and, you know, it's oil in the 19-teens, right, that there is yeah. going to be, you know, I think a concerted effort to really look at tech differently. Um, and, you know, in, in my mind, I think that's probably a necessary thing because uh, it's it's just, you know, I, I think it's that diversif diversification is a good thing um, and there needs to be that. Um, so. I don't think the markets, you know, the Amazons dominate forever, but I also think they play an important place. And I think that, you know, merchants who could look at Amazon and say, I'm going to, you know, customers are going to find me here, but if I do a good job, there's a good chance customers will start come coming to my site Regardless. and in doing so, then how do I make my site the place that they buy from in the future so that I develop that direct relationship, but then still have that Amazon relationship to help with, my, you know, me, me finding new customers. Um, and then, you know, how do I make that a really symbiotic and powerful relationship? Okay. I think that's a great way to end. Martin, <laughs> is that cool? Like, this was so great. I could go on forever, but I just want to say thank that's, you. That's that completely cool? true. No problem. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Okay. Michael, it's been great. Yeah.
Yeah, give me a second. Eric Eric Youngstrom, founder and CEO at OnRam Funds. That was really superior. Thank you so much for doing that. Michael and Martin, thank you for having me. It's been it's been great. I've, I really enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. Enjoyed.